And uh, turn with me to Judges chapter 8, verse 29. We're going to read the, uh, the Abimelech narrative. What we've been saying for the last however many months we've been in Judges, that there are two introductions, there are two conclusions, six major judges, six minor judges, and one anti-judge, Abimelech. And that's where we are today. And just warn you before we read it, it is, it is a long passage, and it's not pretty. But, but we learn through contrast. It, it's, it's better to learn um, advice through reading than through experience. So let's, uh, let's read God's word, which is inspired and for our good. And then we'll look at it. It's 829. It says, uh, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son. And he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father at Ophrah of the Abiezrites. And as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Barith their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good he had done to Israel. Now Abimelech the son of Jeroboam went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him seventy pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Barith, which Abimelech with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Aphra and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, seventy men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. 
Now, therefore, have you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, if you have dealt well with Jeroboam and his house, and have done to him as his deeds deserved? For my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. And you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, seventy men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Bethmillah, and let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Bethmillah and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer, and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. That the violence done to the seventy sons of Jeroboam might come, and their blood be laid on Abimelech their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along that way. And it was told to Abimelech. And Gaal, the son of Abed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. And they went out into the field and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their god and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. And Gaal, the son of Abed, said, Who is Abimelech and who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jeroboam and is not Zebul his officer? Serve the man the man of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? Would that this people were under my hand, then I would remove Abimelech, and I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. When Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaal, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled. And he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Behold, Gaal, the son of Ebed, and his relatives have come to you, have come to Shechem. And they are stirring up the city against you. Now therefore go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. And then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. And Gal, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city, and Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gal saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebul said to him, You mistake the shadows of the mountains for men. And Gal spoke again and said, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. Then Zebul said to him, Where is your mouth now, you who said, Who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despised? Go out now and fight with them. And Gaal went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech, and Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him. And many fell wounded at the entrance, up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived in Arumah, and Zebul drove out Gaal and his relatives, so that they could not dwell at Shechem. On the following day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told, 
So he took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city. So he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city while two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it, and he razed the city and sowed it with salt. And when all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of Elbereth. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together, and Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe into his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, what, have you seen, what you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle, and following Abimelech again, put it against the stronghold, and they set the stronghold on fire over them, so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in it, and they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor-bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. When the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his seventy brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham the son of Jeroboam. And this is God's word. <laughs> it is true and trustworthy and given to us in love. Let's pray. Well, Father, we just read an ugly story. And so I pray you would teach us how to, how to show one another steadfast love as you have shown us. Show us Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve Use this ugly passage to great, be gracious to us, uh, shine, make your face shine upon us and bless us so that we might be a, a blessing and a comfort and a wise friend to those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. That was a marathon. And it's, it got worse and worse as we, as we went because you're, you're left asking the question, what kind of man would kill his own brothers? Simply for the right to be in charge. I mean, this is like Hebrew Game of Thrones, just without the dragons. <laughs> it's just ugly. And yet, what we're being taught, and I hope we're going to look at this morning, is leadership matters. And that the character of who your king, who your leader is, uh, especially in the household of faith, is critical. It's key. That when leaders do nothing more than live for and work for power and control for their own benefit, it gets ugly. And this is about as extreme as it gets. Right? And we all know this instinctively. We have sitcoms that uh, help us laugh. Right? The, the famous leader, Michael Scott, would I rather be feared or loved? 
Easy, both. I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a silly thing, but when you are under the leadership of somebody who has that kind of selfishness and making everything about them, well, it's like living in a, in a bed of thorns. So the question for us today as we're going to look at this is why is Abimelech included in Scripture? We sang with the kids that all of Scripture is God-breathed and it's for our good to train us in righteousness, to correct us, to rebuke us. Um, a lot of series on Judges would just skip this passage, uh, but it's, this, is a, this is an important picture. And so it's a couple thoughts before we jump in. One of the ways to read this in a way that is helpful and, and moving is to see Abimelech as an anti-judge because it's the ugliness of Abimelech and his leadership that helps Jesus' grace and mercy and his service, who Jesus is, look that much more beautiful and precious. Because Abimelech is the, the antithesis. He's the very opposite of every judge in this book. The, the, the judges in this book are weak and live by faith. Abimelech worships power and lives, and, and, and lives by control. And so, in order to see the beauty of Christ, Judges gives us a picture of what it would be like to be under the leadership of someone who is awful. Right? Because that's part of the theme of Judges. In those days, there was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The theme of the book is we need a king, we need a leader. But character matters, so don't just ask for anybody just to fill a role. Don't just rubber stamp the process. We need, Abimelech shows us that we need a king who is worthy, who is virtuous, who is good, who loves people more than power, who, who is godly, who, who comes to serve as God serves. And yet, the other reason this is here, and this is the hard part about preaching a passage like this, Judges is a prophetic book to serve the church, um, it's part of the prophets in the Old Testament. And so it's meant to show and, and convict and teach us uh, th through warning. Because the most sobering part of the text, I think, is in verse 55. In chapter 9, it says, Then the men of Israel, after he was dead, just went home. Which meant... Um, God's people have this irrational tendency to choose a leader based on what works in the moment rather than based on godly prescriptions. I mean, this, that's, that's the warning. We have leadership matters. I mean, Titus 1 says, Don't call a pastor or an elder who is arrogant, quick-tempered, drunk, violent, greedy, or for gain. And Abimelech helps, helps us see through story rather than experience why these things matter. Worst case scenario, of course, but it's scary. It's, it's a warning. It's a prophetic warning that leadership matters. So, uh, it's a warning for us within the household of faith to choose and follow leaders who, who are following Christ. So, let, let's look at this. We're gonna, I got two points. Uh, the rise of the, the Brambly King, the Bramble King, and then crushing on the anti-judge. Gonna, it helps us to know who Abimelech is, to get to know the story. Abimelech is Gideon's son, 
And Gideon apparently had a wife in the neighboring town, uh, a concubine. Um, and that's just a, the only detail you get. I mean, Gideon was mostly good, but at the end of his life, 70, 70 kids and many wives, is, is, it's never a good thing in the Old Testament. So Abimelech's mother was a woman of low reputation from a neighboring town. It sounds like Abimelech lived separate. He had, he had some anger issues towards his brothers. But some of the other things that are significant to help bring meaning out of the story is just his name. Uh, Abimelech either can mean one of two things. It can mean my father is king, right? that he's... He's doing what Gideon refused to do, and he's claiming his father was king and that he has the right. You know, if Gideon names his son, my father is king, that doesn't look good on Gideon's part, who had already said, I don't want to be king. Or it can mean the father is king, which could refer to God, which I, I tend to think that's what Gideon had in mind because he already said, I don't want to be king. He's doing what Christian families do. We, we go to the Bible and find a good godly name. Right? Daniel, God is judge. Nathaniel, a gift from God, you know, and, and hope and pray that the name has an impact and a description of them as they grow up, grow up and grow older. But with Abimelech, it was not so. And so I think there's, he lived like his father was king and that he had it coming and that he deserved to be in control. And what happens, and this is the ugly part, is you wonder, how do you get to the point where Israel is willing to follow a violent man like Abimelech? And what happens, we get the prescription or the description of what happened in, in chapter 8, verse 33. When Gideon dies, the people of Israel forget God. That They have gospel amnesia again. That's the story of this book. They, they forget the God who loved them and protected them and showed steadfast love to them. And they, they just completely ignored all the good things Gideon did. It says specifically, they, do not, they did not show steadfast love to the family of, of Gideon for all the good that he did. And so here's, here's the lesson I think we can pull from this that, that's re always relevant. It's Israel forgot God. They, it's not that they didn't know the facts. It's not like they couldn't have passed a Bible content exam and say God saved us from the hand of Midian through Gideon. It's just that it had no impact on their everyday life. It had no impact on their hearts. It had no impact on the everyday decisions they made. And I think the principle that, that you can get from here is that when you forget the Lord who, who abounds in steadfast love, it will result in us not showing that steadfast love to others. Um, that, that when you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, by God's design, you're also going to love your neighbor. And when you forget God, it, it affects the way you look at your neighbor. They become less. Right? So the, that the idea is that gospel amnesia, forgetting God, and, and especially his mercy, his steadfast love, ruins and harms our relationships with one another. <coughs> and so... Just meditate on this with me. Steadfast love is an amazing Hebrew word in the Old Testament. You'll find it all over the place. And it's one of God's defining characteristics that God gave himself in Exodus 34. I am the Lord. I am, a, I am gracious and compassionate, abounding in steadfast love. 
which is a way of saying our God is absurdly wealthy and his wealth is his steadfast love. He is, his steadfast love is excessive, it overflows. Heaven wants to have his riches, his love, his covenant, his relationship come down to earth to bless us, to be with us. See, steadfast love is the Hebrew word hesed, H-E-S-E-D, that can't be described with just that word, steadfast love. It's multifaceted. It's God's covenant faithfulness. It's, his un, it's loyal love. It's his unfailing love. It's a relational love connected to the covenant, meaning God has bound himself to you and will not let you go. See, everything about steadfast love in relation to God has to do with his surprising kindness and willingness to befriend sinners and keep coming after them because that's who he is. Right, that we have no right to expect him to give us anything, but he keeps coming back and giving. And so steadfast love in relationship to God is sticky love. You're, you're stuck to him. You're bound in, in a covenant relationship. When it comes to between people, it's the same idea. Right? Hannah and Christian are in a sticky love type relationship. They have bound themselves in covenant. They're going, they have promised to show steadfast love to one another for, for as long as they both shall live. Right? Hesed between people is a permanent love and commitment to one another despite the cost. And in Gideon's case... He rescued uh, an undeserving people. He showed steadfast love to the people of Israel at God's command, and it was not reciprocated in a horrific way. And so all that is to say and encourage you, when you find God's steadfast love to be true and good and beautiful, it will affect your relationships. To be able to say to one another, I am committed to being present, to be near you, to be your friend, not because of what you give me, but because God has given you to me. You're my brother, you're my sister. It's, it's doing mercy. Um, later in Hosea, when God is, is upset with Israel's faithfulness yet again in chapter 6, and his heart is bleeding because they're not responding, he says, I don't want your religious sacrifices. I want your steadfast love more than knowledge. I want you to show mercy. I want you to do mercy. And when you forget mercy, when you forget steadfast love, if you take that out of the, the equation of what it means to be human and how we should live in God's world, all you're left with is what is Abimelech, and the way he lives is mercenary relationships, consumer-type relationships, where everybody is built on the principle of relating to each other in terms of, what have you done for me lately? You know, that because you haven't served me, why should I serve you? It's not in my benefit. But when heaven comes down and says, this is not for my benefit, but I want you in a covenant love-type relationship, that is designed to rain down, to filter out horizontally amongst one another. So, Abimelech rises to power because God's people forgot who God is. They didn't love mercy, which meant they didn't do justly, and they were not walking humbly with their God. Now, let's look at how this works out and how, how, it, how it moves through here. 
Abimelech makes a really practical argument. He goes, he sends a message to his hometown. Just tell them I'm your family. Would it be better for, for 70 to rule over you or for one? And the, the key word phrase is, I'm your flesh and bone. You know, I know what it's like to be you. I know you're, this is what, this is a good politician. I know what it's like. This is my story. I've, I'm from you. I'm like you. I've suffered like you. Let me rule over you. I know what it's like to be a Shechemite. Of course, they say, sure, that sounds great. And then for, they get out from Baal's treasury. It's like revenge on Gideon, 70 pieces of silver, one for each of Gideon's son. And they're systematically killed. And it, yeah, it had to be a, a terrifying coronation ceremony if you're from Shechem. I mean, don't mess with Abimelech as he's being crowned king. And then we get this story about the brambles from, jo- from Jotham, the only one who survived, and he's, he's a, bold, a bold man. He goes up to Mount Gerizim, and there's some details that help you get more meaning out of the story. Um, Shechem is a historical place. When I say Gettysburg, that, that rings bells to us from our American history. Shechem would have done the same thing for the Jews. Shechem is where Abraham got God's promise to be a blessing to the nations. And Mount Gerizim is where God would speak his covenant blessings from in Deuteronomy chapter 11. And so basically when they got into the promised land, you had half the tribes on standing by Mount Gerizim, you had half the tribes of Israel on Mount Ebal, and the priests would say, okay, you have a choice. You can either live here or you can live here. If you obey God's covenant, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. And the curses, the reasons you will be cursed sound an awful lot like what Abimelech does. Listen to these. Cursed is anyone who sheds innocent blood for a bribe. Cursed is anyone who dishonors their mother or father. Here's Abimelech killing his father's sons. Cursed is anyone who perverts justice. Right? And so what's sad about this is Jotham has to get up and tell this story and from the place of blessing and pronounce a curse because they have not done what God had told them to do. And so the story of the trees, it's a, it's a, it's a parable, it's, it's a fable of the moral. It says the trees chose a king, they really wanted a king. And the olive trees are saying, well, why should I leave what I'm doing to serve others to be a king? Same with the fig tree. Why should I leave my sweetness and my fruit? The vine, why should I leave my wine that cheers God and men to rule? All of these are saying, why should I leave my God-ordained position to rule over you? <laughs> and so then the trees come to the bramble. It's a short, thorny bush which is not good for anything other than fuel and kindling for fires. It doesn't really have shade. You can't eat from it. And so they, when the bramble says, come and take refuge in my shade, right, it's, like, it's like finding those, those thorns and thistles, those nettles out in the, in the woods and just taking a nap and rolling around, just will, willfully and joyfully stabbing yourself repeatedly. And then the bramble says, if, if you come and take refuge, it's going to hurt. I'm going to, I'm going to hurt you. That's what the bramble says. And if you reject me, I'm going to destroy you. And the translation is, 
no matter what you do, if I'm king, it's not going to go well with you. And that's what Jotham's point is. You've chosen this path. If you did well, great. God will bless it, but not good luck. May civil war erupt between you and, and evil destroy itself. So, it's a pretty amazing, it's an amazing uh, story. What it's telling you is part of being in a fallen world. Uh, it's connecting to Genesis 3, thorns and thistles. Uh, it, it's connecting to the reality that, that just leadership and relationships are full of blood, sweat, tears, and toil. And Jotham is saying, Abimelech, when you were made king and they chose you, they chose to be cursed. It's a terrifying reality when God gives you what you ask for. So, how do you apply this? <coughs> it's terrifying, honestly. I mean, it's saying if you forget the Lord of mercy, it has consequences and it's not pretty. That, that, uh, I'm thinking for us as a, a local church, and just we do need leaders. We, we want to grow, and, and part of growth is having leaders who love steadfast love and want to show steadfast love to others. And so it's, it's a caution. Don't, don't be a mercenary in your decision-making. Don't just rubber stamp anybody simply because they have some kind of talent. Right? Titus says, an elder must be above reproach, sober-minded, self-controlled, hospitable, respectable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Because if he can't, and if he can't care for his own household well, how can he care for the church? And so it's, it's just a, this is a helpful reminder that as we go forward, my job as a leader, uh, the, the session's job as leaders is to help us prepare for the next generation of leaders and to pray for wisdom. Um, that the litmus test for leadership is loving the Lord and his steadfast love and having that filter down into your relationships. Right. Individually, it's saying, it's asking questions like, what kind of leadership do you have in your home? You know, do you, do you, I think it's a good application to say, is my leadership, is my home a, a place of brambles and thorns? Am I under somebody who leads with thorns? Or am I stabbing people with thorns? Which is a poetic way of saying, am, am, I, am I here to serve? Am I here to be served? Right. Is your love and leadership brambly, or are you taking what Jesus said, be merciful, even as your Father in heaven is merciful? Now here's the hope. It is dark, and this is how we're going to end here. I'm calling the point crushing on the anti-judge. When you're in these situations, all you can do is cry out for help. Israel doesn't do that. The only points where we hear about God in this dark narrative is in verse 23, where God sends an evil spirit to make sure they go to war against each other. And then at the end, where it says God was working in the background all along to do justice. Right. I think that's helpful because when you are in the dark, when you are languishing under the curse of the tyranny of living in a fallen world under someone else's cruelty, under suffering, 
It feels dark and lonely and miserable, and all you want to do is say, God, where are you? Are you doing nothing? And for three years, Israel could have prayed Psalm 94. O Lord, how long? How long shall the wicked celebrate? They pour out their arrogant words. They crush your people. They kill the innocent. And then they say God doesn't see. The God of Jacob doesn't have a clue what's going on. And then in verse 23 of Psalm 94, it says, The Lord will bring back upon them their sin upon, on their heads, which literally happens in our text. Right. That's what happens. Abimelech only knows power, and it's like a wildfire. He couldn't stop it. His temper kept going. His anger exploded. Uh, it started with harming those who insulted him. Right? He arose. He went, poor, poor Gaal, which sounds like the rescuer, redeemer, <laughs> uh, he got drunk and let his mouth run and then he had to put his sword where his mouth was and it didn't go well for him. And Abimelech comes to punish, but he didn't just punish those who rebelled him, he destroyed the whole city. It's excessive. And then when the, ironically, when the leaders run for refuge in the house of Baal, Baal Bereth, which is Baal, the Lord of the Covenant, um, they do not find safety in the tower. He can't protect them. But now Abimelech's anger is like a raging wildfire, and so he moves from Shechem, and it goes well, right? He gets the victory, and he seems to move to a neighboring town, and he tries to repeat the same military strategy, only Abimelech did not anticipate this unnamed woman's crush on him, and she drops a millstone on his head, on his skull. That's the literal word. And it completely humiliated he says, don't let it be said, a woman killed me. And he let his, had his armor bearer finish him off. So this is, this is hopeful in the midst of the pain. Because it, God allowed his sin to basically destroy himself. His iniquity came back on his own head. That when he chose to rule with fear and power and violence, people responded with fear, power, and violence. Right. And so here's, here's the point. It's, it's, it's a, when, I, when you get done with this story and it says, well, Abimelech is dead and Israel just went back home. It's like a deafening silence. You know, we, we know that feeling when you've been in an argument and everything has exploded and you have regret. And you're saying, what just happened? And what happens is God responds to Abimelech by sending two more judges to take care of his people. After, the, after Abimelech comes Tola and Jair. God gives Israel good leaders to help heal, to at least give them time. But how do you get to Jesus from here? And that's how I'm going to end. See, evil destroyed itself at the place of the skull. That's the point of the narrative. The life, death of Abimelech, the bramble, the anti-judge, came to an end at the place of the skull. And the place of the skull, you know, you just don't know that you know it. It's called Golgotha. Right. See, that's what happened to the cross. When evil fully and finally destroyed itself at the place of the skull by pouring out all of its anger, the only tool in its toolbox is power 
and destruction and death. And they put Christ to death at the place of the skull on the cross. And so what really helps me see the beauty of, of Jesus is when you look at the ugliness of Abimelech, because when you rule and live with people who simply want to use you, Manipulate, it's exhausting. It's like going out into the woods, finding a briar patch, and saying, this is my bed now. doesn't matter where you turn, it hurts. That's how the Bible describes living in this world. Thorns and thistles infest the ground. And Abimelech is a, is a visible embodiment of what it's like to live under the tyranny of sin, of cruelty, and... You could expand that, I think, as you connect it to Genesis 3 of sorrow and suffering. And what's amazing is when you see Jesus being treated like Gideon's sons, right, where the high priest, you know, in, in, the, in the Gospels, the one who is most like Abimelech is the high priest, Jesus' brother, ethnically, right, who says it's better that he dies than we die. And so when you look at Jesus, you have this physical embodiment of steadfast love where he comes to serve simply because he loves you to the point where he's willing to have his head crushed for our evil, put to death. Do some comparison. Jesus, like Abimelech, was born in shameful circumstances. Only Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Jesus really could say, my father is king. Jesus had the Holy Spirit, not an evil spirit. The, the, the spirit that told Jesus, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And this Jesus came to rule over a people, you and I, who continually forget God's steadfast love. And he says, you are the people I want to serve through my death at the place of the skull. So, see, the cross is where Jesus takes the curse. He dies like a bramble under the fiery wrath of God, wearing a crown of thorns with mercenaries on his left and on his right, all to give you mercy, so that you would love mercy and be merciful as our Father in heaven is merciful. That's, see, the, we sing this every Christmas. We sing joy to the world. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. It's this idea that one day there will be no more cruel leaders, and all we will know is a world where everyone exists to serve their neighbor. But until then, Jesus is teaching you to not lean into the brambles, but, but to lean into and love the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve. Because the gospel invitation is pretty similar. Jesus comes to you and says, I am your brother. I am just like you. I came from heaven to earth to suffer as you have been suffered, to be tempted in every way that you have been tempted, yet without sins, that you might have a faithful high priest, a friend who will, will not leave you alone. And he does that so that you would see that God, who has the power to treat us like the bramble, but instead gives us steadfast love, blessings, and mercy. And when you get that, when you, when you start doing the comparisons, that, that's, what, that's what's going to melt your heart and say, this is a Jesus I want to follow. He's safe. Because who in the world is like this? 
There is nobody in the world who says, my power is not for me, but to serve you. We see it in our culture. I've watched this TV show called Designated Survivor, and it's a fictional show about a president who doesn't want to be president. It's, it's our culture's way of saying, what would it be like to have someone in power who doesn't have an agenda? <laughs> and there's a line in the show that just echoes what we're talking about here, where somebody looks at the president and says, I cannot believe that all you want to do is serve. And he just, he's tearing up. He just, he's just dumbfounded. And you're left as a Christian saying, we do have somebody like that. Greater. So, listen to the writer of the Hebrews. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself took, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death and deliver all those through the fear of death through, who were subject to lifelong slavery. It's not angels that Jesus helps. He helps the offspring of Abraham, us, by faith. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make the sacrifice propitiation for our sins. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's what will heal your mercenary relationships as you fall in love with the one who is steadfast love, which endures forever, and now rules and reigns over you. Let's pray. Now, Father, I pray you would, uh, well, rescue us from the curse. So we thank you that, uh, that Jesus was cursed on our behalf so that we might be blessed. But we have hurts and aches and pains because we have been pricked. And so I pray you, Hope Church would be a place of refuge where those who are plagued and hurt by the fall would come and, and find the steadfast love and mercy of the Savior. And I pray for our homes, our families, our relationships, our workplaces, all those opportunities where we have to be served, uh, that because of Christ our hearts would be moved to serve. So make us to be what you've already called us to be, little Christs, uh, who are your witnesses until the end of the age. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.